Hello, lovely. This is Shauna Lee, and welcome back to the Soul Frequency Show podcast, where we're stepping into the light and raising our frequency together. Each week, we get to return to this sacred space to have conversations about the things we all experience in life, love, health, and career. A space where we, as spiritual beings, having this human experience can amplify our gifts and remember our truth. The title of this episode is, How Do I Cause Myself to Suffer? That's a question. How do I cause myself to suffer? I guess the human condition can surround a lot of experience of suffering. But we often don't think about how we're causing ourselves suffering. It feels like suffering is put upon us or it's just something that happens in life. And this conversation was so wonderful and enlightening. And my guest today, Caverly Morgan, is a meditation teacher, a nonprofit leader, and visionary. She's the founder of Presence Collective, dedicated to igniting personal transformation and collective awakening, as well as the founder of Peace in Schools, a nonprofit that created the nation's first four-credit mindfulness class in public high schools. You can learn more about her work at caverlymorgan.org. And today we talk about our own personal journey, our collective journey, how to return to our heart and our soul, how to be more of who we are in the world, how to connect with ourselves and therefore connect with others in a whole new way. And I really felt like this conversation hit in some really deep ways so that we can get to the heart of who we are. And Caverly's new book is really about personal freedom and about our heart space and our soul. And we talk a lot about it in this interview. And there were some moments that I, as you will hear, said, wow. That's powerful. So with no further ado, please welcome our guest, Caverly Morgan, to the show. Caverly, welcome to the show. I'm so happy you're here with us today. Donna, I'm so glad to be here. Really, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because we have hosted this show for years now, and it's such a fascinating perspective to to do so many interviews, right, over these years and to talk to so many people and to read so many amazing books and hear people's stories and stuff. And And there's always like a piece that really touches me about that experience. And from the moment I saw your book, which we're going to talk about, and we're going to talk about your journey today. Um, it just felt like this energy or this frequency of something so pure and so beautiful. And, you know, I can feel those energies beneath the words. And so before I even opened your book, I think it's just fun to reflect this back to you because obviously, you know, what it takes to write a book is a lot um, and to share your heart and to share your words that I just felt that. And when I started opening the pages and started reading through it, 
I just felt this real, like grounded sense of like a beautiful energy behind this. And somebody who has walked through life and, you know, I think so many times we can feel like we are transforming or we're changing or we're evolving and just feel like I've got this, I'm here. But there's this other energy of, of a person, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, who is constantly in this beautiful unfolding and is asking herself questions all the time, right? To see, to see more or to go deeper or to see it from a new perspective. And like that, I just deeply appreciate. And that from the moment I opened your book and started reading it, I was like, this is so beautiful. So I just wanted to share that with you before we get started here, that that was my first impression of your work. I just feel so honored and touched. It's really meaningful to me to have you say this, Shauna. And one of the reasons why is because I am conditioned to be a perfectionist. <laughs> so when I first saw the book in print, the first thing that happened is I saw all the things that I would have liked to have been different. <laughs> you know, I, 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 there was some issues around the spacing that I had hoped would appear differently. And actually it's a long, it's a long list of things that if I could have changed, I would have. And it's actually taken the reflection of loved ones. And then people like you, who I'm just getting to know who, who acknowledge the spirit of what I did shines through. And I've really, it's been a wonderful practice opportunity. I've really let go of all the small things that I also had loved ones say, no one's even gonna know that that's what you wanted because I just trust that this is what's here and that must be what you had wanted. So it's it's really been a precious opportunity in that way. And so thanks for acknowledging that you can feel the spirit of it uh, come through. There's a lot of, um, this book feels very spirit driven for me as a project, very spirit led. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So I want to go back into your history a little bit too. Maybe we should start there before we even get into the writing of the book, but um, you know, take us back to, let's say your teenage years, your young twenties, like who were you then and and what was evolving in your life at that time? You know, as a teen, I I can't say that I would describe myself as someone who was suffering a lot. I I did question the conditioned reality around me. I did wonder. So is this what's ahead of me, like have the boyfriend, get married, pop out some kids, have a job, then I die? Like, is that is that what's happening here? And I was a teen who wanted to ask large questions about existence, but I, I didn't have a lot of people around me who reflected a process of how to have such contemplative inquiry. So my questions manifested along the lines of, as I mentioned, so is that all there is? Is it surely there's something else? So I, I was a teen who, um, you know, didn't struggle with like severe depression or anxiety. I had my share of those things, but I would say that I fell in the realm of the average teenager uh, who who just wanted to know what else was possible. 
Yeah, it's beautiful. And as that led you into your young adulthood, like did that questioning continue to become like louder for you within you of like, what is this life? Because I think, you know, I was very much the same way when I was young, like just seeing the whole picture of like, is this it? Like, is this the whole human experience? Like, and seeing, you know, the amount of people that are conditioned into something that looks very similar, right? Like a very similar kind of trajectory of their life which is a weird perception to have like at such a young age and to think like that far ahead and to wonder if that's it. So how did that continue on for you? You know, it continued on in that I kept searching for role models who were manifesting an alternative, who were showing the way that wasn't the conditioned way, who were forging unique paths. And I feel very blessed that I ended up quite organically, although I feel that there was a lot of divine intervention going on. I, I, I ended up meeting some beautiful role models. Uh, one of them I talk about in the book, Paulus Berenson, he was an artist and living an incredibly alternative life. He was he was making um, pinch pots out of clay, but instead of selling them in museums or, or you know, having them hosted in museum, museums, selling them to art collectors, he would bury them after he finished making them. And everything he did was about ritual and reverence and giving back to the earth and being in a reciprocal, um, I would say, like earth as beloved relationship with the planet. And I had never, I grew up not seeing anything like that, but that's just one little example of a crack that opened that allowed me to see that I had a lot of options and that I could let my longing to have a meaningful life lead. I could let that inquiry lead. And, and I appreciate you recognize that that inquiry is woven throughout the whole book. I don't think that that relationship of engagement with existence ever ends. It doesn't have an end point. Yeah, that's what I felt. Like it's, and I think it's beautiful because it doesn't have an end point. And yet I feel like sometimes our egos want to put an end point on that. And instead of like, just kind of accepting what is true and what is so, and that's the invitation that I was just, I won't even say it was in the specific word, like no set of words were saying that to me, but like this, everything underneath the words, right? The energy underneath the words was like, you know, just keep looking like, and one of the things you talk about is like the conditioning, right? And these, like these ideas of societal norms and that we operate within. And you beautifully talk about the ways that you continue to notice, right? The ways that you operate in that in your own life, like even with all the, you know, question inquisition and like moments and meditation and sitting and stillness, like like just noticing how much of what we do and how we go about life is part of that conditioning. Yes, it's it's interesting, isn't it? It's like water that we're swimming in. 
how we've been conditioned to move through the world is, is the sea. And until we began to become curious about what it is that we're swimming in, we might not even notice that we're swimming in something. It just, you know, I'm reminded of that cartoon with the two fish swimming along and one fish makes some sort of acknowledgement to the other about the temperature of the water or something. And that the other fish is like, what's water? You know, it's just like the fish <laughs> has never known anything other than water. So that does interest me to, to have one of the things I talk about in the book is this notion of what we are unconscious to silently governs us. So if I don't know what conditioning I'm swimming in and likely acting out of or acting on behalf of, then I can't see what might be actually governing, governing my, my movements in the world, my behaviors, my decisions, my speech, my actions. Yeah, and what have you discovered like over your journey along the lines of this? Because you, you have an interesting, you spent time in a monastery as a monk and you talk about, which I thought was so interesting about really focusing on like the self, right? Through that experience and what your perspective is and getting outside of, you know, kind of um, the conditioning and the ego. And it seemed as though I could be incorrect, but as I was reading that, that there's another viewpoint as you came out of that experience in your life that was, it feels more expansive or collective. Um, can you talk a little bit about those experiences? Sure. Thank you. I, went into the monastery with a very focused view. And that view, I, I could say what I was focused on was personal practice. How do I cause myself to suffer so that I can see that suffering so that I can let it go? That was the, that was the burning question. How do I cause myself to suffer? I Midway through the training, and certainly by the end of my experience as a monastic, I became interested in what was being maintained by having such a honed focus on what I thought of as my suffering. Another way to say this is I became more and more interested in who is the my in that sentence, what, who or what is it that is suffering? And that question in practice opens our view quite widely because we've realized there, there, the whole entire experience of suffering is happening inside a limited construct that we tend to be conditioned to call me. That is really powerful. And even in just hearing that, this is my, this is the perfect example of my experience of your book, because even in just hearing those words and for anyone listening, just go back and play that over, we expand because the conditioning has us very focused on our suffering. Yes. I mean, we all 
want to end suffering, even like I'm thinking of some, a family member who wouldn't say that his objective in life is to end suffering. Like he's not coming from any kind of spiritual perspective. He's not religious in any way. He's still doing things in his life that show me that he wants to not suffer. Like he just thinks that if he keeps buying new things, he's going (laughs) to be happy. Or he just thinks if he just has another drink, then he's going to be happy, right? Like fill in the blank. I've found that as we begin a spiritual practice, many of us just plug in more quote unquote evolved content. So now I'm just going to become a more skillful manifester, or now I'm just going to become, uh, my thoughts are going to be more pure. Or now I'm really going to be able to respond rather than react. And so my life will have this outcome because of that. But you can feel how much I'm still seeking after this thing called not suffering, or we could even say happiness. But I have this view that if I can just get myself to dot, 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 then I'll get to have that experience. So we're refining what was pretty crude early on, and we're sort of plugging in spiritual language, but we're still left with that same sense of, gosh, whatever I do, it's not quite enough, or there's more, or I just need to perfect that a bit. If I can just, well, if only, and you know, I didn't do that perfectly, but tomorrow I could, you can feel the energy of it, can't you? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, recently I've shared this with a couple of people where I look back on my journey of kind of, I'm going to call it awakening, but it was just a very abrupt, like series of changes in my life. And I look back at that time now, because I have enough, I'm far enough down the road to have some perspective on it that I didn't have, you know, probably even a couple of years ago. (laughs) And I'm like, the whole beginning of that process was all ego. Like it was my, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's like exactly what you say. How can I fix what I don't like? I can you know, eat an ice cream cone and I'll feel better. I can become spiritual and I'll feel better, right? I can, whatever you, you put the, you know, you put whatever in that blank that you want, but it's still coming from that same energy. And, and when I look over the journey and the journey is ongoing forever, there's a softening or a a change, right? in how I relate to things, that has happened that I can see now because it's been years and years and, and a difference in perspective. It's really what it is, a difference in perspective that I don't feel I could have, you know, snapped my fingers and had, it's just something that evolved and, and something that evolved without me even knowing what it was like, right. I mean, I'm only looking back and having the perspective now of like, Oh, how interesting how I've changed in these ways or how I see life differently in these ways, but I didn't seek that. Yeah. Yeah. It just was something that you were able to see later. You were able to see, gosh, that's, that's different. I used to bring this to the table and I, I just don't anymore. And, and what I love about what you're saying is it, it points to how, I would project, you tell me if this is your experience, that underneath all of that searching and all of that longing, 
was the very thing you longed for all along. So actually, it's not that you did some gradual process that finally allowed that light to come on. It's that you, over time, seeked veiling that light. You, you ceased, excuse me, you ceased veiling that light in the way that you've been conditioned to veil it. So it, it's, it sounds um, like it might just be semantics, but it's not. It's pointing to the way in which the very thing we long for has always been right here. Yeah, it's really true. And it's, and it's like, you know, I say to myself in the quiet moments, like, I think we can all say this about all kinds of things. Like, did I have to go on that journey to, to uncover the simplicity, right? Of what this really is, right? And how I feel. And I think, yes, I don't think, you know, I don't think it, it it's like, it's an energy, it feels like it's an energy just moving through or a part of your consciousness, right? Just like, just moving through these levels and, and experiences, right? And perspectives. And it just kind of is happening. And it's not something, you know, that I sit there and the part of me that asks, like, could I have gotten there faster? Is just my ego, right? Is it, can't we just check this box and, you know what I mean, and move on? And really, like, and how much do we do that to ourselves in life and in everything? And it's like that, you know, that ego comes in and says, oh, I should write a book faster, right? Oh, I should be here. I shouldn't be there. Like, I mean, it's just everywhere you turn, there's opportunity for that. And then also other people reflecting their own iterations of that into, you know, your reality as well. Indeed. Yeah. It's, it's, it, that's what I mean by veiling. The, the, the veil is that conditioning that says, oh, I should as you pointed to before, fill in the blank. I should. It could be anything. I should be moving along my journey faster. I should have figured this out earlier. I should have not needed to um, have such a winding path to get to, I love that you used the word simple, to get to such a simple truth. But that's the very veil that keeps us from being able to simply rest in what's always here, the very thing that we long for. So that, that voice that pulls us, that we, if we're not paying attention, we could mistake as like a, a helpful spiritual coach, you know, like pointing the way or something is actually the veil that, that keeps us from what we want more than anything. Yeah. And that brings me to like your words on love in the book. And, and you talk about, um, I just thought it was so beautiful. Like you were talking about some, some of these conditioned things, like, like, let's just take the sense of belonging. Right. And there's a lot of, in our culture right now and in our society, we see a lot of people feeling like they don't belong right? People feeling left out, people feeling separate. And you talk a lot about oneness and separateness and, you know, and what it really means to be free. And if we're in that separation, if we're playing this separation game, like we've played for eons, 
we don't really truly have freedom. And at the heart of all of this and the belonging, like love, I think, didn't you say like, there is only belonging in love. Like that's, you know, when you are in that, that frequency, call it of love, there's only the sense of belonging and nourishment and feeling good. And, um, so maybe you can share a little bit about, you know, some of the vantage points that you have on this idea of separateness and, and really what we're moving through in our culture right now. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I, I like that you say this frequency of love because, again, what we are conditioned to assume is we have to do lots of things in our lives in order to make that frequency happen. Rather than how is that frequency all there really is, and yet I move to the world acting on behalf of that sense of separation at times, therefore I miss the frequency. I don't hear the frequency, I don't see the frequency, I can't be attuned to the frequency because I'm identified with this conditioning, with the conditioned mind rather than recognizing myself or even remembering myself as love. So a meditation teacher I, I am friends with, colleague, mentor, I love very much, Rupert Spira, I remember so clearly when he said, love is the, love is the recognition of shared being. Mm -hmm. So our being is always shared. But I don't feel like it's shared if I'm identified with my conditioning that says, well, what if this interviewer doesn't like me right now? What if I'm not being very articulate? What if I'm not packaging myself well? What if, right? And then I'm back in the I thinking should land that has my sense, my it has the, frequ the frequency of shared being obscured. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And it takes you out of, right? It pulls you right out of, and I, I love how you say like, the love is the truth. Like that just is, right? right? And then we identify with this other thing that is basically pulling us out of the perspective of, of just love is the constant, right? It's just, that's what is true in the highest. Exactly. Yeah, it's like, it's like we put on a costume and- join a play, but we've forgotten we're wearing the costume and we've forgotten that we're in a play. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. And it's mm -hmm. so, and we get so caught up in being in, in that character, in the costume, in the play, that the fascinating part is like, even when love shows up or something contrary to the costume, we hold the costume tight. Right? Absolutely. I mean, have you ever known that place where because you're identified with some of your own conditioning, like love shows up and you're like, yeah, whatever. I can't trust you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 What do you, what do you, what do you have in the other pocket? Where, or when is the other shoe going to drop or what? Yeah. What's this going to cost me? Yeah. Or someone says, I love you. You're like, you don't love me. Yeah, right. Give me a break. Like, like come on, I'm, I'm in the unlovable costume. Like, go, go. Did Impossible. you miss the unlovable costume I'm wearing? <laughs> right. Do I need to like write it on my forehead? Yeah. 
And it's like, and I always I say that like, you know, when you're in that place and I, I'll just call it the ego right now for simplicity, like it's like, it tells you if you have two things that are the polar opposite, let's say, you know what I mean? This is black and this is white. It tells you that both of them are wrong, right? Oh, there's or you a no. can't, you can't yes. have either of them. Totally. So you're just, you're in oblivion, right? Yes. Like, yes. It's like, if you look at the white, it's like, no, you can't have that. No, you can't have that either. Like, and then you're just sitting there going, okay, wait, it doesn't even matter that these two things are total opposites. It's a no-go for everything for me. You know, I love that you're pointing this out because that's exactly why I wanted to focus on duality in this book is when we're stuck in the conditioned mind, we don't even recognize how dualistic it is. And that within that dualistic view, right, wrong, good, bad, this, white, black, white, we don't realize that there's no winning on either side. It's the whole construct is flawed. So we spend our time trying to get to one side. But as you point out, at the end of the day, it's a completely no-win situation. There's no, the freedom we long for doesn't come from pushing to get to one side. It's like, if you ever, I I love um, talking to another woman about things like, you know, that space where you wake up in the morning and for whatever reason, you just feel like you've got it. Like you're, you're just hot. You're just rocking it. Your jeans look tight and perfect, like tight in the (laughs) right way. Right. Yeah. And then for whatever reason, by 3 p.m., you look in the same mirror and you're like, what? I am fat. I am like, I got a muffin. (laughs) Disaster. (laughs) This is what the hell happened. But, you know, actually nothing is different. What is different is we're or actually not what is different, but what has happened is we're just bouncing back and forth in the duality of fat, then right, wrong, good, bad. Got it, don't got it. Hot, loser. Lovable, unlovable. And and we're all, even if we think we're on the hot side, right? Like, okay, I got the tight, but tight in a good way, hot jeans and I'm rocking them. How long does that experience last? It's always in contrast to its opposite. And what we miss when we're stuck in that is that we get focused on the content an extra however many pounds, losing however many pounds. We're stuck in that. We're stuck on how the genes are fitting, but we're not noticing that the real issue is that we're identified with the I that sees life in a dualistic way. So we, we, we're we not paying attention to the right thing. We're paying attention to this content, but we're missing the process. The process is I'm identified with an I that's going through life looking at everything in terms of right, wrong, good, bad, this, that, enough, not enough. It's all keeping this illusory sense of I in place. Exactly. That is so beautifully said. It's a game you'll never win. A game you'll never win. Which is why people are so tired. How can we not be tired? Yeah. I mean, it's like when you and I unpack it, it's like, yeah, it's just going to suck to to have your whole life be a game you will never win. And yet we think we're going to find happiness inside the game. So we keep playing it. Yep. The happiness that we seek is the letting go of the game. 
Mm-hmm. And that's why I love that you started with questions about being a teen, because I don't think about that a whole lot. But really, that original inquiry of there has got to be more. There has got we come on now. Is this game it? Is this is this like the deal? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, when I was, I think I was 25 years old, I um, had a first job and I it was doing really well at a first job. And and I remember I got my dream car and I had a closet full of clothes with tags on them because I would just buy stuff, you know, and be like, oh, this is, I'm living the life, right? This is, this is the life. And I remember literally looking, I can visualize pulling up to the place that I lived, sitting in my nice new car and looking out the windshield and thinking for the first time in my life, none of this is making it better. Yep. Like none of this is solving what I thought it was going to solve. And I had this moment of time. It was like a lucid period for a very short amount of time where I, I literally pictured this. It's so funny. I don't know where I got this visual, but it was like a a 50 year old bald gentleman, you know, it showed up in my mind's eye and I pictured him in this big house, right. With a family and a wife miserable and drinking. And I was like, instantaneously, I was like, this is where we go. We chase these things to fill something that is never going to be filled doing that. And then we end up trapping ourselves to some degree in a lot of stuff, right? And a lot of things and a lot of responsibilities to other people and in the conditioning, really. And and then we don't see a way out, right? So we start to like soothe ourselves or shut down or, you know what I mean? Close ourselves off from feeling the feelings of like, what we're talking about, like, this is it, like, this is it. And, and if, and, you know, when people get, let's say their midlife or beyond that, like those feelings get more and more, I think, intense because it's, it's, you know, your people tell themselves like, I'm older. I can't, you know what I mean? Like, there's no option at this point. I've already bought into this reality and there's no out. And it was like, literally like, I mean, all this in a very succinct period of time is what I saw in that moment. And I was never the same after that. Like I I didn't change my life radically at that time or anything, but it's like, I saw a glimpse of it. And the same thing that you're talking about, about like, is this it? Like, am I going to be doing this for the next, you know, 40, 50 years of my life? And it was just, it was like something cracked in that moment for me. And God bless you, life, the universe, everything that you had that experience when you were 25. Yes. You know, uh, some people have that moment on their deathbed. Some people never have that moment. So I want to be careful. Like if there are listeners who are 90 years old, you know, it's not about, oh my God, it's too late for me. I'm only realizing this stuff now. It's just about thank you, life. Whenever we can have that kind of insight and thank you, life, that there's something ahead And and that really actually does include, even if it's like a few minutes left of my life, I just think there's especially um, great cause for gratitude if we have that insight at a time that we can be responsive to then shifting things and so that we aren't uh, trapped in a cage that we don't want to be in um, for the rest of our lives. 
Yes. And I'm really interested. You talk about peace in schools. Um, can you share a little bit more about, about sure. this? Yeah, I, I feel so blessed to have had a, a wonderful, rich relationship with the formation of a nonprofit called Peace in Schools. I started the nonprofit when I led a workshop for adults about the inner critic. And one of the teachers came to me after the workshop and said, the teens I work with every day must have the tool that you just shared with me. This is life-changing for me. Can you come into my classroom? So it started incredibly organically. I came into the classroom and the teens were, they were like sponges. They just soaked up. You know, I, I actually often talk about how as adults, we're kind of crusty. You know, <laughs> you pointed this to a little bit too. Like we start clinging to our costumes, right? Like this is, yeah. but this is my costume. Well, I wasn't finding that with teens. They were like, oh, hell yeah. I'm happy to throw off this costume because I was starting to put it on and I was like, wait, is this me? Like, why am I downloading this? This is just, you know, shit my mother's saying I should wear. I don't even know if I like this yet. Right. So they're eager to like question everything and say, like, let's throw it all upside down and find out if this is even real or true. So that was thrilling to me to, to work with this like engaged group of people who wanted to ask big questions like, who am I? I mean, who am I really? And so I started the nonprofit and now we have the country's first semester long credited mindfulness course in the country. And we are in eight public high schools in Portland, Oregon. So beautiful. I mean, congratulations. What a beautiful gift because everything we're talking about here, you know, it starts early on. I mean, I think, I think most people, when you start widening your perspective on this, you say, how do we, how do we shift, you know, society? How do we, and you, you're obviously going to look towards the youth, right. And towards the young and say, how do we, you know, help people understand more of the truth and more of the love that they are. And, and so I think, you know, things such as this are so incredibly valuable um, for kids. And what are some of the experiences that you guys have had, you know, in the program that were just impactful for you? You know, honestly, they're, they're countless. They're countless. I, uh, I started the nonprofit, uh, a, a dear friend named Barnaby Willett was highly involved with the formation of, of how we did what we were doing. And, at one point we joked because at the end of each semester, teens write about uh, an experience they have where they put the tools into practice by being in silence and solitude with themselves for a, a retreat day that they create. And Barnaby and I joked like, these papers, by the way, are just so profound. You know, teens for the first time being without their phones for that many hours and knowing what it's like to just feel into the preciousness of their own being in an entirely new way and to be present to be here for the lives that that we're that we're meant to live so barnaby and i joked at one point we were a couple of years in and these papers like i said they're just profound but we joked we were like eh, 
this teen, this teen hadn't even, they're not, they're not even someone who like had gone through like major life hardships and now everything is totally different. They're just having like the kind of run of the mill, amazing, beautiful awakening experience. (laughs) (laughs) We just had to laugh because we had gotten, we realized we'd gotten kind of numb to how astounding these these self-reported experiences of being deeply present and aware of what is on, on again, the deepest level. We, we had gotten numb to how common it was to hear these incredible experiences. And the only ones that were standing out are the ones that, that tend to um, make headlines, right? Like, unfortunately, the class was started because the principal of the high school where I was where I was invited to teach uh, recognized that based on a school suicide the year before he didn't know how to proceed he he had parents saying well what are you doing about this are you know and he realized I don't have a program of wellness I don't know how to teach well-being so uh, that's how the program kind of took off. And a lot of the stories, like I said, that kind of make headlines, if you will, are the ones where at one point a student was already an alcoholic and they were only 15. Hmm. But the class gave them the tools to no longer have to have that crutch in, in their life. Um, students who had attempted suicide that have a completely different experience of what it means to move through the world questioning the voice that led them to that kind of uh, attempt or suicidal ideation. You know, I don't, I want to be careful, you know, we're not, we're not therapists, we're, you know, we're, we're mindfulness practitioners and teachers. Yet, we see results that one would expect in a lot of therapeutic programs where, um, yeah, a lot of therapeutic interventions. Um, But we have this blessed opportunity to not be costing hundreds and hundreds of dollars for these sort of single, like private offering type settings, right? Like if you went in and did deep, therapeutic work with each student who was struggling, think of how different that that costs rather than having a course that's embedded in a school that anybody can take that offers tools like how to recognize the conditioned mind, how to disidentify with the inner critic, how to see when the conditioned mind is perceiving reality through a lens of, of duality, how to get out of that identification, how to move beyond it, how to recognize the compassionate mentor within. You know, these are all parts of the course, how to see your own survival strategies and step away from it and realize that survival strategy is not me. Mm, So beautiful. Because a lot of kids, especially in those teenage years, right, are in those survival strategies. Absolutely. Really, when they come on. Yeah. And as you pointed out, they just get crustier and crustier. I mean, that's my word, but you just pointed out how it just solidifies, right? Right. It does. It's so beautiful. When I read about that, I was like, those things move me because I, you know, I have a son who's 10 and just being in that environment, like 
and watching, you know, and witnessing things that go on, you know, with other children and like how people get conditioned. Right. I mean, I literally watched it through raising my child happening around me in different ways and how that affected children, you know, meeting children when they're very young, like in his class and then seeing how they changed over the years and how the conditioning was affecting who they were was just a profound experience in my life. And I was like, wow, I mean, this type of curriculum is so needed. And, and like you said, I don't think it's needed in a sense of, I think it's beautiful to go out and seek therapy or things of that nature, but not everybody has a child, has a parent that's going to do that. Right. And, and to have it as part of the curriculum means that it's available, you know, to all of the children at that school and the profound shifts that can, you know, occur in that way. I mean, sometimes we are born in situations where we're very different than the parents were born to. And to have access to something like this for a child who really resonates with this, right? And and gets to start to learn about it where they wouldn't be exposed to that in their home is just a gift. It's really such a gift. It's, um, I am able to say now that I'm turning 50 next year, that it's the greatest gift of my life. The greatest gift of my life was having practice open to me, was, was having, was having the, the greatest gift of my life was having the awareness that I could do something differently with my life other than the conditioned path that was laid before me. And that there was a practice that I could employ that, that I, that it was actually very empowering to me. If I had to sum up what I think teens walk away with from the class that seems most significant to me, it's a sense of empowerment. You know, I can put my attention where I want it to be. I can choose freedom. I can't always control circumstances, but I can choose freedom. And I know what that means internally. I know I know there's a practice and a path and a way, a way to do that. I think that's the greatest gift for humanity. Hence the subtitle of, you know, the book, Realizing Freedom Together. Yes. And I wanted to ask you about freedom because you talk about freedom just to close out. Um, what is freedom to you now? Freedom is knowing and living on behalf of the deepest truth of who we really are the heart of who we are. Freedom is moving through the world on behalf of that knowing without any limitations. All the limitations that come from our personal and collective conditioning that are illusory, that are created, that are not requirements in life. Yet we've been conditioned to assume that they are. Hmm. So freedom is inherent, boundless, 
spacious, luminous love. So beautifully said. Thank you so much. The book is The Heart of Who We Are, Realizing Freedom Together. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and also for writing such a beautiful piece. Thank you so much. I really appreciate getting to talk to you today, Shauna. Hey, lovely. This is Shauna Lee. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Soul Frequency Show. If you got even one piece of valuable information, head over to Apple Podcasts and share a review with your takeaways. And follow us because we got lots more goodness to come. We are spreading the love far and wide. And you know where to find me over at IG at The Soul Frequency. Until the next time, love, here's to positive vibes and powerful awakenings. Mm -hmm.